Welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Egner. Uh, I have as my guest today, Dr. Stephen Post, uh, who is an internationally uh, recognized uh, expert on um, philosophical, scientific, and medical uh, aspects of uh, deeply forgetful people, such as people who have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and um, he has fascinating insights on the relationship between the mind and, and the brain. Uh, as well as the ethical implications for our understanding of that relationship. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Yeah, that relationship is so important, Mike. Uh, back in my Ohio days, you know, 20 years at Case Med, and I traveled all over with the neurologist uh, Joseph Michael Foley, who was just incomparable. Uh, we once drove down to... Uh, Mount Vernon, Ohio, near Kenyon College. And uh, there is a geriatric psychiatric institute there. And one of the uh, sections of that uh, institute is devoted to people with the dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and probable Alzheimer's disease. Because as you know so well, being an esteemed neurologist, that pretty much ubiquitously people with Down syndrome, by the time they get into their late 40s or early 50s, see a decline uh, in their mentation. And it's, it's really kind of development in reverse. So they have probable Alzheimer's on top of the Down syndrome. And we, we, Joe and I walked into this uh, uh, unit and we saw there were probably 50 people there being cared for so meticulously and so palpably kindly um, by a whole bunch of uh, Hindu um, nurses' aides. And apparently um, these Hindu nurses' aides had gone down to Mount Vernon and they had their community there uh, and, and they were totally devoted to what they were doing. And, and they were not rude, they were not judgmental. They were totally accepting. Their tone of voice was was warm and kind and uplifting. So um, Joe and I were so impressed. We took three or four of them out to a pizza restaurant in uh, a nearby town. And we just asked them, we want to know what motivates you? How are you so committed to caring? Because ethics is so much a matter of caring and respecting the dignity of these individuals. How, how do you maintain that? And they said, namaste, which all the listeners will know is the Hindu greeting, but it's not just, hi, how are you? It means, I honor the divine in you. And, and so what they were saying was that they don't view these individuals as gone, as husks, as empty, as useless eaters, life unworthy of life, to use a Nazi German term, but in fact, they see them as equally valuable because they're still sacred in, sacred in, their, in their being. And this is where ethics has to get started uh, with this population because otherwise uh, every kind of abuse known to the species has been inflicted on individuals who were vulnerable and imperiled um, because they are deeply forgetful. It's, uh, it's interesting that that really echoes uh, the ethics of Matthew 25, uh, where 
Christ says that uh, what you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you've done. For that is a beautiful quote. And I, I, I quoted in, in uh, uh, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. And Joe Foley, who was a very fantastic uh, Christian neurologist, he quoted it too. And in fact, we once wrote a chapter in an edited book about the relevance of that verse to the care of this population. So I appreciate your bringing it up. Sure. The, um, uh, as we, I'm sure we, we both feel the same way about this, there's a very disturbing trend in medical ethics regarding the care problems for people who have uh, profound cognitive problems. And you describe a, a concept that I actually had never heard of before, but is absolutely chilling, and it's called preemptive assisted suicide. What is that? Well, you know, I had doubts, Mike, about including that chapter in the book. Uh, but the editors at Hopkins, they were fine with it. I use it to mean uh, or to refer to individuals who want to uh, avail themselves of assisted suicide while they still have the capacity to be the agents of their own uh, deaths. And one typical case, um, a friend of mine uh, from Cleveland, had, uh, her sister was succumbing to, uh, to more and more severe uh, Alzheimer's, but she was still capacitated. And she wanted to preempt the decline. That's the preemptive notion. So uh, with her, her husband and her, and her adult children, she organized her trip to go to Switzerland, and uh, uh, there is an institution there called Dignitas. There's language for you. And uh, uh, now her sister, who is my friend, uh, was distraught over this because I, I have an email right here on my bulletin board. It says, I, I can't get over it, how I wanted to go uh, and be with her in her final years and let her know that I still loved her, and, and I'm terribly upset that she went to Dignitas. And then I, 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 I responded, but you know, you can't judge her, don't judge her. And you know, you can still love her, but, but, um, but this is what she chose to do. I don't recommend it. As you'll notice in the book, I, I, I give four or five very good reasons against this, philosophical reasons, ethical reasons. And yet in the final analysis, you know, I've known a few people who, who even though I recommended that they not do this part. See, partly I, my thing about suicide goes right back to Thomas Aquinas and, 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 and his third argument. Uh, it's it, the first argument. Well, you know, it's hubris. God, God gives life. God takes life away. That's not too easy to sell in this world. And the other, th the other argument is that it's against the law of nature. Well, I'm not sure of that. Um, but the third argument is that it has a kind of epidemic quality. And so when you think about the young people 15 years ago who were jumping off that dormitory roof at NYU, uh, they were following the leader. It was uh, really mimicking that was going on. And that's typically the case. There have been some episodes, by the way, among high school students in uh, Waco, Texas, that I've read about uh, quite deeply. Uh, so, it, uh, it, you know, instead of just one person, uh, a young person killing himself, uh, you, you, you had a chain of seven or eight. And so that's the, and Hemingway, you know, Hemingway's father 
shot himself. Ernest Hemingway shot himself and his daughter killed herself. And you find this, this runs in families. So, so suicide becomes a way of dealing with the difficulties of life. And that's why I don't want to leave that as a legacy to my own kids who are growing up now. I don't want, I just don't want to leave that for them uh, because possibly in a pinch they will emulate me. And uh, so I, I stay away from it. I don't recommend it. But on the other hand, I've known some very, very good people. Uh, when I was at the University of Chicago, I had two psychiatrists, both of whom were mentors. One was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He had a loving family. He spent about eight years in a nursing home in Hyde Park. Uh, his family was visiting him often. They were stimulating him, reminding him of who he was with symbols and music. And uh, he, he did pretty well. There was another psychiatrist who had no family. Uh, and he just didn't entrust himself to the system. He didn't want to die with a tube in every orifice, natural and unnatural. So he took 40 secondwells and put a plastic bag over his head. And a few days later, I was in the uh, Chicago Sun-Times on the front page. And, you know, um, that's a tragic thing. And I suppose if you're, if you're, they, we call these individuals now, I don't know what the language uh, means exactly, but live alones in the literature, people who have no family, no, no support, no one to advocate for them vis-a-vis -vis the possibility of over-treatment. And for them, preemptive assisted suicide is um, somewhat appealing. I, I wrote an article in one of the major uh, generalist medical journals about a guy who was a street clown in San Francisco. And, you know, he would do his performances on the library steps uh, there uh, down Market Street somewhere. And, and uh, he was getting to the point where he was quite deeply forgetful. He had a diagnosis of probable Alzheimer's. And so before he declined too precipitously, he took his small bit of savings, you know, four or $5,000, got himself an airplane ticket, and he went to Dignitas, and that's the last anyone ever heard of him. So I recognize that this is inevitable, that it's going to happen. Uh, but my, my attitude, to, to quote another scriptural verse, is judge not lest you be judged. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not for this. I'm not an advocate by any way, uh, any stretch of the imagination. And yet uh, I also uh, understand that in our society, given the state it's in, that people are going to avail themselves of these opportunities. They don't have to go to Switzerland. They can go right up to Montreal. And, and I'm hearing that it's going on in New Jersey, but don't quote me. You can't, but it's not legal. It's not legal. And, and you know, Oregon, Oregon, you know, I mean, so the, the, the assisted suicide laws in the U.S., you've got to be determined by two independent clinicians to be roughly, give or take, you know, within six months or so of dying. You could have pancreatic cancer or you could have ALS, you know, and, um, uh, and, and if you still have the ability to do this to yourself, you're pushing the final red button uh, that allows the poison to flow into your veins or whatever it might be, uh, uh, then you can do this. But for most people with the progressive dementia of the Alzheimer's type, by the time they're within six months of dying, you know, they have lost their capacity for decisions and act actions, purposeful actions, um, a long, long time ago. So they're basically ruled out.
And I think that this is what's going to happen is you're going to see most of these places uh, in the U.S. in the next several years following uh, alongside uh, Montreal and Quebec and, and uh, Switzerland and, uh, and other such places uh, because uh, it will be viewed as discriminatory uh, uh, to, to uh, disallow deeply forgetful individuals uh, this opportunity, quote unquote. Right, right. The, the, the kind of a sick twist. The uh, I, I see the assisted suicide question as um, really, in some sense, three fundamental ethical questions. That is, is it ethical uh, for an individual to commit suicide with you know, with medical assistance? Is it ethical for a society to sanction assisted suicide? And is it ethical for the medical profession to play a role in it? I, I, I think it's unethical on all counts, but I, I very much agree with you that, that we, we need to show sympathy for people who uh, are in such a uh, an existential state that suicide seems to be the appropriate thing to do. There's a great deal of suffering going on there. It's, it's, it's a terrible state. Although you know, suffering, yes, while they are still insightful into their losses, but and I use the word carefully, if there is a kind point in the progression of dementia, say of the Alzheimer's type, it is when people forget that they forget. And then they can have a relatively benign, not universally so, but a relatively benign emotional adjustment. They have lost the temporal glue between past, present, and future they're living mostly in the pure present, which, by the way, in the popular culture of Zen is a, an ideal modality of being. <laughs> I just have to throw that out. I mean, when you when you spend a lot of time with deeply forgetful people, you can't be too chronologically concerned. Um, and, 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 but but at any rate, yeah, I, you know, um, these these are individuals who are not suffering, obviously. I mean, you can ask that question, are they suffering? Well, I mean, if they're well cared for, you know, they, they, they're not suffering. Um, I'm, and, and, if, and well cared for and not insightful into this kind of peeling away of capacities. And if people realize that underneath it all, uh, they can be connected with, if we can just listen attentively, notice the subtle purposes in their activities, you know, I, I, I think that uh, there's oftentimes a lot more purposefulness in 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 these individuals uh, than we realize, but you have to have a, a special sensitivity to it um, and be open-minded about it, which is, again, why I don't like the word dementia, because it's just sort of them versus us. They have declined. They're gone. Whereas deep forgetfulness is, is you know, look, we, we all have our moments. Uh, I, I have my moments on the escalator of this building. One part of this that, that bothers me profoundly um, is the participation of the medical profession yeah. in, the, in the assisted suicide business. Yeah. Um, and in, in a way, um, a doctor um, uh, carrying out assisted suicide is like a pilot deliberately crashing a plane. I mean, it's kind of the opposite of your job. I, I, I can't yeah. fathom a doctor going into work in the morning, knowing that he or she will kill a patient that day deliberately. 
Uh, and it, yeah. it, it's, it, it's the antithesis of medical practice. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, there's no reason on earth why mm -hmm. if a society wants to sanction assisted suicide under law, that they have to use medical personnel. Oh, absolutely they true. They can yes. allow judge, judges to write prescriptions if they want. Yeah, exactly. So Leon Cass, who was one of my, uh, I was, a, I was a, a teaching assistant to a course that he did in the Pritzker School of Medicine in Chicago. He wrote a book called Toward a More Natural Science, which is a classic. And in it, there's a chapter called, Is There a Medical Ethics? Question mark. And that he's looking for something that derives exactly from the logic in Aristotelian terms of the purposes of the healing art. And so for him, the, the reason why the Hippocratic Oath so strongly forbids even counseling someone about suicide, let alone operationalizing it for them, uh, is because the healing art should not ever be confused with the killing art. Now, he does say, he does actually say that if this was ever legalized, you would not want to participate in it as a physician because of your identity and your formation. You wouldn't want to compromise your integrity, but you could have a paraprofessional group. I, now, what would you call them? I, I have no idea. You could call them terminators. You could call them death busters. And, and so he, he doesn't use that language, but he suggests that it would be, it would be better than having doctors be so engaged. Right. I, and I think the, one of the, I mean, I, I, I believe that the enlistment of the medical profession in this business is deeply, deeply evil thing. And it bodes horribly for our profession and reflects terribly on, on, on doctors and on the medical profession that, that we would tolerate this, let alone participate in it. Yeah. And the logic, the, the logic you're talking about, I mean, it's a contradictory practice. It, it's as yeah. though, think about yourself, you're, you're going into a doctor's office, let's just say your office, and, and, and there's a nurse who uh, leans out through the, uh, through the door and calls into the uh, waiting individuals in their chairs and says, uh, Mr. Davis, the doctor is ready to kill you now. Right, right, right. Suddenly everybody's, everybody's freaking out. So the killing art, you know, can't be the can't be the healing art. You, you know, you, you've got to keep those logics separate. And many of the people I've known who have been uh, most seriously uh, opposed to abortion, uh, I know several of these individuals, they were initially uh, taking on most of the responsibility in uh, obstetric departments for elective uh, abortions. And one of my friends who I knew in Cleveland at uh, the Metro North Hospital, great guy, at a certain point, he just said, you know, I'm not doing this anymore because it's not, I was trained to bring life into the world. <laughs> okay. Right. That's what I was, and that's what I, what I take joy in doing, whether it's a C-section or a natural birth, that's where it all comes to. And the idea that I'm going to be spending the rest of my career doing, uh, you know, DNC elective abortions or whatever, is it, it, it's just not appealing to me. So he told that to his department chair. And I, I was involved in these discussions. And the department chair wisely said, well, you know, 
I think we need to respect your conscience. And so other people in the department uh, can shoulder that responsibility and we're not going to blame you. you. You have done your job. You've done it as well as you can. And now uh, it's time to move on and, 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 and we can fill the gap. And, 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 but on the other hand, I've known some people who were really uh, uh, excoriated for taking this position. Uh, here at Stony Brook, you know, the, uh, if you look at OB, uh, the, the OBGYN department, uh, it's a mix of individuals. Some of them are more comfortable than others. And they have a policy, you know, if you don't want to do abortions, you don't have to do abortions. And the medical students who are in the uh, clerkship program, they are specifically uh, uh, instructed that they should not violate their moral conscience. And so if they feel uncomfortable participating or even witnessing uh, abortions, then they don't have to be in the room. Do you, do you think that that uh, conscience exception is mm -hmm. being threatened? My, my sense is that there is a, a rather powerful movement afoot to constrain uh, our freedom to respect our consciences in this situation. Well, you know, uh, this, this medical school we're in was what the first founding dean was a close friend of mine uh, uh, for 20 years, Edmund D. Pellegrino. Uh, he was also a friend of Joe Foley's. Uh, and, you know, Ed was, as a Roman Catholic, he was opposed to abortion and refused to do it himself. And then the question came to him, well, would you refer a patient to an obstetrician who would, in fact, perform uh, their requested uh, elective abortion? And, uh, and Ed wrote uh, very controversially at the time, no, I would not, because then I would be complicit, which is an ethical term, I would be complicit in the act myself. And so that's where Ed came down. Now, a lot of people uh, who are conscientiously opposed to abortion uh, will actually make referrals. There are some studies on that. Um, it's an area where they're somewhat ambivalent, but they'll make the referrals. Uh, but I do think that physician conscience is crucial. Uh, how can you practice? How can you have an identity? How can you have integrity? if you cannot have your conscience respected in areas that are very, very important to you. I think if we go that route, uh, it's, it's just really the end of medicine. Now, are we moving in that direction? Um, you know, in some areas, in some areas, I think maybe uh, it's gotten so bureaucratic uh, and uh, the expectations as employees to employers uh, is really one of acquiescence sometimes, and it doesn't allow people the, the level of freedom of conscience and activity that, that was once commonplace. Well, my, my understanding is that um, referral for assisted suicide, at least in Canada, um, is required for medical licensure. And uh, I, I could be wrong about that. I don't believe that Canadian physicians are, are allowed to simply refuse yeah. Yeah. and not refer. Yeah, I don't think it should be required. I, 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 a referral should not be required because many people uh, have very strong opinions about this and it violates their integrity. And, and so this is in, in the military, you know, they, they, they have an expression for this. They call it moral injury. When you're taught, you go into the Army or the Navy or there, you're taught about noncombatant immunity, 
you're taught about proportionality, balancing the harms with with uh, uh, the, the the circumstances and so forth, um, and and so and don't torture. But if you look at the people who go who go who are in Iraq, for example, who were involved in some of the torture and the the uh, the killing, uh, they all had post traumatic stress disorder, and a lot of them are still in the VA medical centers uh, getting help. Uh, because again, they were asked to violate their moral substance. And that's the thing that I think is so, is so important. So I don't, want to, I don't want to recommend that anybody goes into a profession where they can't uh, be granted the uh, freedom to uh, express and operationalize their most deeply held convictions. Right, right. Uh, but I, I do fear it's at risk. And, and I, I, I go back a lot, think about why on earth doctors are expected to, to, to play any role in killing any human being that is in euthanasia, in assisted suicide, in abortion, in all those situations. That, that is simply killing. Um, and if society wants to sanction killing, um, it should at least uh, do it uh, not with people who are in the medical profession who have an obligation to, uh, to protect human life. And you can ask, well, why is that? Why is, why is it assumed that doctors are the ones who should be doing the assisted suicide or the abortions? And obviously, to some degree, it's because doctors are acquainted with the techniques and the instruments and so on. But there's a deeper issue, I think, and that is that people who are advocating killing want to have a medical primitive. They want to have kind of, a, they want to wrap a white coat around the killing and make right. it seem as though it's an ethical thing. It's healing, it's preventing suffering, all sorts of things. So there's a deeply evil, misleading lie uh, behind medical killing. So I'm advocating very strongly within the medical profession that we just wash our hands of this that doctors yeah. agree never to deliberately kill a patient. It seems yeah. such a basic thing, but we're doing it a lot. Yeah, they want the white coat. And, you know, the, if you think about this in terms of uh, executions in, in capital punishment and the like, um, the AMA itself, the American Medical Association, forbade uh, physician involvement in uh, electrocution or any form of capital punishment. Uh, and that's been in place for probably 35 or 40 years. There was a period of time when uh, some doctors were so involved, but it was scandalous uh, for them as, as moral beings. I mean, that's really what I get concerned about is the very being of a physician at the deepest level. How can you ask them to do things that are so much contrary to what they've been taught to do and not to do. That's the moral injury. And moral injury, I think it's one of the reasons, uh, Mike, why uh, you know we call it burnout. It's not just burnout. You know, People get tired, they quit the profession, there's a lot of attrition. But it's, it's also the moral injury. It's the moral injury of doing things that you're not comfortable with. Right, right. So, uh, uh... I, I guess the, the the best thing we can do about this is to continue to speak out uh, mm -hmm. and uh, to uh, because I, I think there's a great deal of sympathy for our perspective of 
within the medical profession. But a lot of a lot of doctors, a lot of people in the medical profession, mm-hmm. uh, kind of think of it as something that they're expected to do. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, 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 that the resident training and obstetrics may just think of abortion as some rather unpleasant thing that they're supposed to be doing as part of their training. And uh, I really want to emphasize to people uh, in the medical profession that you don't have to kill. Uh, and that uh, when you're killing, you're not acting in the medical capacity. So I knew a kid from Queens, and he was he was doing his clerkship in uh, obstetrics, and he was uh, he was Korean American, and his major identifying community was a Korean American evangelical Presbyterian church, like you see, you know, on Northern Boulevard. <laughs> And so that was who he was. But he wasn't sure about his views, wasn't quite sure about his views on, on the matter of, of abortion. And he certainly didn't fully grasp the right that we give him. And it's very explicitly allowed and encouraged uh, uh, not to be involved. And uh, he, anyway, was involved in, in one of these uh, DNC abortions where you, you know, there's a tube, a plastic tube, and you can see blood and, and, you know, remnants of small body parts going into a pan. Uh, and after this was over, he, he had to leave the room and, um, and he went home and he, he was just unable to breathe for the evening. And uh, he talked to me about this, uh, and, and, and he said he, you know, he made a mistake. Um, he did something. He wasn't sure that he was conscientiously opposed to it, but he felt that he probably was. He just wasn't 100% certain. Well, seeing all that and all of its graphic quality um, made him absolutely convinced that that's not something he wants to do. I don't think he went into OBGYN uh, professionally, but he understood that he was going to exercise his veto power and more power to him. Now, I have to say that I saw him even three or four weeks later at a small group in a reflection context, and he was still speaking about this and trying to process it. And, you know, it was, a, it was quite a significant, you know, he'll never forget what, what, what he saw. Now, for other people, this is just routinized, you know, it's just, you know, everyday activity. But for him, um, you know, it was terribly contrary to who he wanted to be. Well, I, I was at a uh, meeting of the uh, uh, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, which is the, the uh, national entity that uh, accredits training programs for doctors. I was, I was at a meeting uh, about a month ago. And um, uh, because I'm a program director in neurosurgery, I, I, I train the young neurosurgeons here. And uh, there was a session on um, the uh, response to uh, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade uh, on behalf of medical education. That is, how do we uh, educate uh, residents, for example, to perform abortions in this new environment? And it was in Nashville that the meeting was held. I was sitting in the audience listening to this, realizing that here were, and there's a panel of experts of, 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 of uh, you know, national leading OBGYN people, of attorneys and so on, discussing training residents to do things that in about half the states in the country are now felons. 
uh, that this bizarre scenario in which um, the uh, commission of such acts like uh, like abortion uh, is sanctioned by by many people in the medical profession when right now in reality these are felonies in many states uh, so I, I, I really don't think the doctors and residents should be trained in these kinds of procedures that's amazing you know, you know philosophically Mike I mean you know I, I think ultimately the abortion issue if you really look at it almost metaphysically. I'm mean, not talking about social determinants of health and all of that kind of thing, which is important. But it really comes down to Aristotle's distinction between potentiality and actuality. So if, if you look at the sort of the dominant philosophical view, um, it makes no sense, it is argued, that someone who is actually a moral agent who is actually fully, quote unquote, a person, that they would have to accommodate an entity that is purely potential and unactualized. So as Aristotle pointed, pointed out, you know, in his, in his view, I don't think he was right. Actuality always trumps potentiality. But you know, if just on a meditational level, if we think about this, every one of us on the face of this earth began as the teeniest little speck of potentiality. And in the Christian tradition, we don't distinguish between potentiality and actuality. Potentiality is actuality. And that's why uh, there are baptisms and baby showers and all kinds of things that go on. We try to create a culture of inclusion. But what we see in these occurrences is a culture of exclusion, sometimes very radical exclusion. And that's uh, ultimately where I think most of the cards are on the table. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a terrible, degrading thing. And uh, Mother Teresa actually uh, said one time uh, when she visited the uh, United States that one of the greatest evils is, is, is uh, that, uh, that a mother will uh, kill her child. And if you're not safe in the womb, then nobody's really safe. It's just a geographical thing. <laughs> you know, so, but, but you, know, you, 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 you can make comments about it, you know. So it, it, to some degree, I mean, you know, you're, you're a neurosurgeon, so you know about all the things about brain death and diagnosing it. At what point is a is 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 a person no longer a person by virtue of brain death? Well, you know there are article arg, arg, arguments about this that go way back to Henry Beecher at Harvard, who along with Leon Cass, you know, developed the whole brain criteria. Um, but people there like Robert Veach, a very famous medical ethicist, uh, actually uh, wanted to say, well, wait a minute, you know. You're, you, you, even if your brain stem is working and, 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 and controlling certain physiological uh, mechanisms, if, you're, uh, if your higher brain is, is, is no longer operative, then for all intents and purposes, you're dead. That's called higher brain death. Um, you know, the problem with that is that, you know, as, as you're well aware, you know, even people who are in the persistent vegetative state, we think of them as dead. But Joe Finns, who's the leading ethicist at uh, 
Cornell Wild New York Hospital and a pretty good friend of mine, you know, he, he, he came up with this idea about 15 years ago called the minimally conscious state because he, he noticed that there, there, there were some rare patients who had been diagnosed as PVS and the nurses were saying, wait a minute, there's something a little more there than meets the eye and they were coming out of it. So, right. you know, instead of confusing the PVS thing, he, he came up with a new category and that's now widely accepted. But listen, I know Jewish uh, neurologists, I knew two in Cleveland, uh, and they refused to diagnose uh, brain death uh, because on their uh, grounds, conscientiously, uh, even whole brain death, even, even, even the situation where the brain stem uh, the, the, the reptile brain, if you will, is no longer functioning. Uh, you still have warmth to the touch. Uh, you know, you, you, you still have with respirator support, you still have breathing going on. And so it may not be integrated and controlled in a central way, but if, for them, you know, the whole idea of, uh, stretching death beyond the point where someone is simply cold to the touch is unacceptable. Yeah, and I think that's a that, that's a viewpoint that's very much worthy of respect. Um, you know, I, I've been trained and working in a system where brain death, biological death of the entire brain from the cervical medullary junction upward, is considered actual death. In which case, organs can be harvested, etc. And I've I've declared many people brain dead in my career. Yeah. But I see that there are some very serious ethical issues there. Uh, and I, I don't consider it a settled ethical. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I teach in, in, in a medical school and I don't, I don't uh, write about abortion and, you know, all, all, with, with few exceptions, I think the students view it really as a social political issue, a social determinants of health kind of thing. And that some people don't have access to, elective abortion to the uh, degree that others do. And, and if you look at the, da- the, uh, the, the recent Supreme Court case, you know, uh, where, where abortion is completely outlawed in, say, Kentucky, but not in New York, then it just means the people from Kentucky need to get on a bus and come to New York. But that's very inconvenient for them and uh, disruptive and expensive and they don't and and usually these are relatively poor people so it it gets boiled down to an issue of economic and social equity and equality and so-called justice and and that's what you hear the most about uh but nobody really is is solidly addressing the deeper metaphysical questions that are that are most important and, and people skip over, if, if one talks about social determinants of health, if one is talking only about the sort of difficulty that one encounters if you live in a state that doesn't permit abortion, you want to have an abortion. But there are other social determinants of health that cut the other way. That is, that, mm-hmm. for example, black children are aborted at a rate three times, at least three times, uh, that of white children. Uh, poor children are aborted much higher rates. And in many parts of the world, girls are at a much higher rate than boys are. Uh, so there's lots of um, social determinants in the, in the abortion machinery uh, yeah. that are very important, uh, particularly, I think, in the U.S., the fact that the abortion rate amongst African-Americans is much higher, that are never brought up when we talk about social determinants of health. Yeah. 
That's that. That's exactly right. And and uh, by the way, um, just on uh, you know, linking this back to Alzheimer's. So some cases of Alzheimer's, as you know, uh, are caused by an autosomal dominant gene. That's the presenilin one gene on chromosome fifteen, I believe, and the and the, the more rare uh, uh, presenilin two, which is on chromosome one. And these are individuals who, if they have that genetic mutation, it will cause them to get Alzheimer's disease pretty carefully defined, usually by about the age of 40. But there are some cases on record of individuals in their 20s, late 20s, with Alzheimer's disease carrying especially the uh, presenilin uh, 2 genotype. So this is not like, you know, the normal late onset Alzheimer's when people are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it's about, you know, 2% of people at age 16, it doubles every five years. And so when you get up into the 80s, you're talking probably about 14 or 15% of the population given current life expectancies. Uh, Of course, it's much worse in Japan where people live into their, well into their late 80s and early 90s on average. But so I, so I, I, I was on a, a national public radio program with a woman from Chicago. This is probably 20 years ago. And she uh, had decided to have a selective abortion because her fetus, based on amniocentesis, carried uh, the presenilin 1 gene. And she, as a teenager, uh, had cared for her father who had the early, this is the rare early onset form of Alzheimer's. It only uh, is, it contributes about 2% of total cases. So don't, and, 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 and it's very irrelevant to the general masses of people, but these are special circumstances. So uh, she had cared for her father while she was a teenager, a young teenager, and had been very disruptive, of course, for her family. And uh, she never herself got genetically tested. You can't, you can't get genetically tested for any of the susceptibility genes like the apolipoprotein E4, but you can get genetically tested at a, at a testing center for the uh, autosomal dominant stuff, which was what was affecting her family, obviously. And so she did not get tested um, herself. No, I'm sorry, what is she? Yeah, she actually did get tested herself when she was pregnant. And she found that she carried the dominant gene, and that meant that her uh, fetus carried it as well. So she wanted a selective abortion. And a lot of people uh, reacted very negatively to her, saying, how much do you want to control the life and lifespan of your child? You know, your, your child anyway could have 35 or 40 years of good life, could do wonderfully creative things, and maybe they'll come up with... Uh, a real solution to the Alzheimer's problem uh, sure. uh, during that period of time. Um, and, uh, but she still, she just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I, 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 I said, you know, I don't, I don't condone this. I, I think, you know, how much should we be controlling the lives and the lifespans of our children? Well, m- maybe you can talk about certain conditions, Tay-Sachs and so forth, but, but this is really stretching it. But she wanted to have it anyway. So I, I said, well, look, I'm not going to condemn you. Judge not lest you be judged. 
and I think she went ahead, you know, uh, uh, eventually and had and had her selective um, abortion. But that raises the question of, you know, just how how much are we moving toward perfectibility as a notion of human fulfillment? Because, I mean, if you think about it, on uh, you know, uh, any uh, elective abortion or selective abortion is going to be based on you know the uh, the age of onset of the of the illness or the the the, the you know and, and it could be immediate it could be 10 years down the road it could be 80 years down the road uh, and also the severity is it something that's very severe or not so severe and 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 so you know these are these are I don't have decisions in my pocket for individuals but I think they have to consider these things much more carefully maybe than we are because uh, these days, uh, you know, uh, selective abortion uh, for a, you know, when I was at the University of Chicago, we had a case where a mother who had not been able to uh, get pregnant for many, many years, she finally got pregnant. And then they showed on ultrasound that the, um, the fetus, I think in its, you know, seventh or eighth month, had a clear um, cleft palate. And this mother had a particular thing about cleft palates. And even though they are surgically correctable, correctable now in, in remarkably uh, effective fashion, uh, she still wanted her selective abortion. So she got her selective abortion, and she never got pregnant again. Well, the, the, the tragic irony there is that one could consider the willingness to kill an innocent human being because of a medical problem like that as kind of a negative uh, aspect of a human being's personality. Um, but these are the same human beings who are killing other human beings because of a cleft palate. And that's all that is. That, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's a horrendously evil thing. It's, it's a sad state that our, that our society is in and a sad state that the medical profession participates in. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, it has uh, been a privilege and a pleasure to talk with you. And um, maybe we can do a lot more of this. These are fascinating topics. Sure. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, it's my website is Stephen with a P-H, G-Post, stephengpost.com. And, and, and your new book, Stephen, what's... what's, what's uh, it's, it's Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. And it's out with Johns Hopkins University Press and it's having a pretty good impact. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting that book and I look forward to reading it very, very much. And I just want to thank you for joining us. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.